Welcome to the U Catastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church, and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I am Joel Harrison. I'm joined, as always, by Dave Taylor as we continue with our socially distant, socially distant podcast. Even the words, they roll off my tongue. You can see the scorn I give them. I'm, 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 it hasn't become clear to you over the past couple of weeks. I'm not someone who loves this social distancing thing. But, <laughs> so I'm going to ask Dave a question. It's not related to social distancing. It's related to something that he tried to convince Kate and I to watch. Mm. I'm going to ask him this. I'm going to ask you to justify yourself, David Taylor. <laughs> justify yourself. Why did you watch Tiger King? <laughs> Uh, so it was recommended to me by a colleague, uh, but it, I found it really, really interesting. So it was, it was a fascinating study in um, delusion and like the delusions of narcissism. Uh, it was really well constructed, probably dishonestly, but um, in that you never quite know what the show is about until at least halfway through. Uh, I thought it was really, really fascinating, but you you've thought that it was sinful. <laughs> I think you thought I was wicked for enjoying um, it. Yes. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, 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 no, I mean, I watched it and we kind of laughed and we kind of enjoyed it enough. Not all of it. We watched one episode. Yeah. And then I just sort of, st- we sort of stopped and went, this is a bit like how Augustine describes um, going to the Colosseum. Right. You know, how one's eyes are drawn to the, vision of the gladiators and the splattering of blood. One's ears are piqued by the um, noise of the um, audience in the in the Colosseum. One's nose is affected by this, how all the senses are oriented towards being trapped into this breads and circus, right? Yeah. And I thought this is kind of what this is, right? This is, I was watching and thinking, I'm clearly being manipulated in a very obvious way. Yeah. Um, and And to be sort of, have my gaze upon these people in a way that sees them as pathetic mm. um, and curiosities. And I just didn't enjoy that kind of manipulation yeah. of the narrative to to have me pouring my immediate scorn upon all the characters. I, I what was the name of the character Carol, was it? Was yeah. It Carol? Yeah. yeah and Carol I was, we were watching and going, so 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 take we're taking away from this that essentially they're all just a nasty bag of goods, right? She's creating her own tiger park, but for cosmopolitan elite type people, and he's uh, creating his own. I'm sure there's more happens, Dave. I don't actually care. <laughs> but it's also about something about the the pathologies associated with that industry. So you've got to ask oh, yourself questions she was just about... Wearing but, tiger suits all the time, going to see congressmen and women? Yeah, but also suits? like that there's something, there's some sort of moral de- denigration that happens when you seek to instrumentalize animals in this kind of way. Uh, and so I think that's sociologically that's interesting. Oh sure, I, I, and I this think is I, all there. I think I'm with you. This is turning into an episode on tiger, but I'm with you in that I think there is some sort of um, uh, fetishization or objectification of, of the, the southern poor, um, yeah. and by by you know li- liberal types uh, like wealthy liberal types or middle class liberal types. Uh, so that that does make me a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, but at the same time, like it also displays you know. Southern queerness in a in a way that that doesn't get discussed before no, that, that doesn't get discussed very much uh, in a way that I think is very interesting. Uh, Look, I have to all say, sorts of stuff. Yeah, my time is limited. 
very, very limited at the moment. <laughs> so we we confine ourselves to the true, the beautiful, and the good. And on that basis, we of course have been watching The Crown. Um, because you know, you know in time <laughs> in times in times of crisis and need, one needs her majesty. Sarah and I watched last night a film called Extraction with um Chris Hemsworth, and it was directed by the stunt coordinator for the Marvel movies. Oh my god. And, and it was just about, it was about a, real quality. It was actually <laughs> so it's all sorts of problems with it. It's oh, sure. wasn't very no, good. I'm, I, I'm surprised. But it was just sick. <laughs> what you enjoyed it. it? It was about yeah, absolutely. It was about a, it was just a, a, a mercenary, a, 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 a world weary mercenary who's hired to go and save a to extract a drug lord's son. And he basically gets stuck in the middle of Bangladesh and has to escape with this kid. And it's got some of the best action direction I've ever seen. It's like, have you ever seen? <laughs> this is the oh, point you... we're at now. This okay, is the point where we're at. We should stop talking about we, we've got, anyway. David and I have just gone to the point where we've just gone mad and we basically just want to have action sequences played ad nauseum. In fact, I should tell you, I've been re-watching all the Marvel films during yeah, this period right. as well. It's kind of like my how to get the tri- how to get the, th- the four-month-old now to go to sleep, rocking her as I watch the next in the Marvel films. But yeah. anyway, that's not actually what we're talking about today. I, I just you can tell to that use- we, haven't, we haven't got to talk to each other yeah. outside of this context. That's right. And I, just, and I just wanted to use this as a public opportunity <laughs> to scold David for trying to get us to watch Tiger King, which yeah. was clearly, clearly had, clearly just... Not something that somebody should be watching. I mean, I'm judging you. <laughs> sure. So what we are talking about today is this season of Easter and resurrection and its uh, meaning and for this pandemic that we are in. So we've had two episodes in which the first one we were talking about total depravity and the pandemic. And the second one, we went on a bit of a rant about um, what churches are doing and maybe how we should be thinking at this time. And so we thought we should really finish off this trilogy, much like Return of the Jedi does, with um, a triumphant um, celebration with Ewoks dancing on the moon of Endor. So we're looking at resurrection and the pandemic. Pope Francis in his Easter message has this uh, as part of it says the following, like a new flame, this good news springs up in the night, the night of a world already faced with epochal epochal challenges and now oppressed by a pandemic severely testing our whole human family. In this night, the church's voice rings out, Christ, my hope has arisen. This is a victory of love over the root of evil, a victory that does not bypass suffering and death, but passes through them, opening a path in the abyss, transforming evil into good. So what we wanted to just discuss now is what does Easter, the story, say to us in this context of COVID-19 and the pandemic? And then thinking then again, thinking about what perhaps are the new signs of life or the primacy of life that we may be seeing in this context. Yeah, so I think what I was hoping to do uh, today is to take some of the kind of what I see as the main kind of theological themes of the Easter narrative and to think about how they shape the way in which we think about our current historical moment. Um, and three themes in particular, I know that you, can, it's, you, can't, you can't really exhaust the meaning that you can draw out of the Easter story, obviously being the cen- central kind of story of our narrative as Christians. But three kind of big points that I I wanted to draw out was firstly, I want to look at the resurrection story as a a sign 
of the ontological primacy of life and peace contra death and violence. By ontological primacy, I mean that ultimately the foundational reality is life and peace. Secondly, I want to look at the overturning of political orders founded on sacrifice. So particularly with the story of the crucifixion, that we worship a crucified saviour who was um, uh, in one sense executed as as a matter of expediency um, to prevent more lives being lost. Uh, So what does it mean to to live in a, at a political order or a political story that eschews that human sacrifice um, through the vindication of our, of our sacrificial um, uh, offering uh, in the resurrection. And finally, I want to look at the possibility of the eucatastrophe, that is the unexpected breaking in of the good, the glorious, the grace-filled into messy, chaotic situations. And that's what the resurrection ultimately is. The, you, the resurrection is the ultimate eucatastrophe, according to Tolkien, who coined the phrase, um, that ultimately this, this ultimately defeated figure uh, is raised triumphantly. So let's, starting with the, this first point, the, the ontological primacy of peace. This, the, I think that's a phrase that I, I think I've gotten from Milbank through osmosis. Um, I, I can't remember where. Well, actually, I think it's probably in debates around um, Milbank and uh, Giorgio Agamben, uh, Agamben being something I'm much more familiar with. Um, but as I said, so the, when I talk about the ontological primacy of peace, I'm talking about the, that peace is the foundational reality, not conflict. Um, uh, contrary to a lot of other stories about the nature of reality. And so when we see the resurrection of Christ, in one sense, it's a bursting in of something new into creation. That is, the old order of uh, things has is passing away and Christ in his resurrected body is a first fruits um, of this new creation um, coming in. But at the same time, it's not simply just a new thing coming into the cosmos. Um, It's also a reminder and a signifier of something that was already there, um, uh, that had already been true of the way things are. That is, that life is more powerful than death, um, that love is more powerful than hate, that peace is more powerful than war. And ultimately, um, the abundance of life contained within Christ couldn't be overcome by the violence of human beings. Uh, and I think this is an incredibly important thing to keep in mind, especially in an age where this, this, the Christian understanding of reality being founded on peace and love and life uh, is being kind of challenged uh, over the last <laughs> several centuries for all sorts of uh, intellectual and cultural and even economic reasons. So if we think back to kind of pre-Christian times, there's many mythic accounts of the founding of the universe and creation available. And, uh, and often what they do is they ground the emergence of human life uh, in acts of violence by capricious or indifferent gods. Um, and so or the think, founding of the city. Or the so founding Rom- of the city, yeah. Romulus and Remus. So Romulus founds the city of Rome upon the death of his fraternal rival. Yeah, and even in the Hebrew scriptures, we've got mm. Cain as the first uh, city builder mm. um, as well. And and there seems to be something deep in, within the human psyche suggesting that this foundation of cities is somehow linked to violence 
uh, and death. Yeah, and you can go back to, you know, the overthrowing of the Titans. Yeah, that's right. The, the gods, you know, and Kronos and so on. You know, so that there's this perpetual conflict that is the founding of a cosmic order as yeah. opposed to in the Hebrew scripture, you get the declaration of the word that declares creation into being and calls it good. Yeah, that's right. And so this is a given in a beautiful um, uh, a depiction in both C.S. Lewis and in Tolkien. So in the Cimmerillion, the creation is sung sung into being by angelic beings um, who are kind of given a sub-creator status by the ultimate God. So that's the that's the vision. And in, um, and in Lewis, it's the it's Aslan walks through the hmm. world again, singing it into being, doesn't he? Yeah, I think of the magician's nephew. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so it's so this is kind of in stark contrast to a lot of the competing narratives that are available. Um, that is that ultimately it's it's word, not violence, that founds the universe. Um, so, but. There's been a re-emergence, I think, um, in the last um, several centuries of this kind of pre-Christian understanding of the foundation of the universe, one that grounds it fundamentally as as uh, in in acts of violence or at least in violent competition. Um, so if you think of Camus' famous novel that a lot of people are reading at the moment uh, called The Plague, uh, which was one of my favourite um, novels as an undergraduate, uh, the plague is uh, set in, um, I think it's in French Algeria, um, and it follows the story of a heroic doctor called Ryu who um, is struggling to fight against a plague uh, that emerges oh, within his town. struggling to fight in bison. <laughs> oh, that's Ryu. <laughs> oh, I can't pronounce things. My Kiwi accent has destroyed us again. So Ryu, he, um, th- so a plague breaks out in his town and there's, Several, several different responses, beginning with denial and all sorts of things, and then ultimately goes into quarantine. And Ryu finds himself kind of in this meaningless task of trying to resist, fight the plague, um, and he ends up in this struggle to find meaning in a meaningless task because um, ultimately it's meaningless because the plague is just death in a particular mask. And you can't fight death because death is the most natural thing in the world. And ultimately, Ryu's struggle is a struggle to find um, meaning in doing the meaningless, uh, the, uh, in, in something that is ultimately futile and meaning, meaningless. And that is the kind of existential, existentialist's kind of goal is to construct one's own meaning even in a meaningless universe. So for Camus and for Dr. Ryu within the novel, death is the... Is, is the is the foundational reality and the plague itself is more natural than human lives that are trying to resist it. So I, I find, I think that's very interesting, but I, I think that view itself, that idea that, that death is, is more real, that disease and, and competition is more real than cooperation, peace and love and life, that, that ha- is actually kind of coming to the fore in politics at the moment as well. So there's a, there's a secularised paganism, what I'd call it, that embraces and even relishes in death and violence as foundational principles of the, wor- uh, uh, of the universe. So you've got, you've got at the moment um, political leaders calling for the sacrifice of the elderly to maintain the, the economy, um, and particularly in the United States. Um, you're, you're hearing this kind of rhetoric um, where, where 
people describe the people that are going to die from COVID-19 as um, as people that were destined to die anyway, which is chillingly close to um, the language of totalitarian regimes, that there's certain groups of people that are kind of destined for death. Mm. And these people, you could argue, have, have a shallow Darwinistic or Malthusian understanding of the world where economies function best when they allow those that are deemed unfit by nature to die um, or to just be be poor. Um, and uh, you can kind of see that politics emerging in um, apocalyptic literature. So and there just seems- on that on that on that point, you know, it is yep. fascinating that there's an appeal to it, and you said in a Darwinian or almost Malth- in a Malthusian way as well. And it's this idea that nature is competitive and this is just simply na- nature working its course towards the natural selection of those who should die, right? Yeah. When, when it's, it, it's clearly the case that there is never pure nature. Yeah. Um, you know, we are never outside of any enmeshment in culture. Yeah. And so those people who are saying, oh, they should die and so on, it's not really a case of picking based on natural selection, but usually it turns into picking based on, in this case, wealth. That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like in the context of the pandemic, when you say certain people will just have to die, mm. well, you're not talking about certain people who will die if they have access in that particular United States context to adequate private health care, for example. That's right. Um, and and yeah, and so you, there's almost a relishing in this situation. And I think that's the the kind of... Um, that's what's behind a lot of apocalyptic narratives as well. So people like to imagine themselves in this kind of zombie apocalypse situation where they're reliant on their only their kind of um, ingenuity, their preparation and things like that. All this kind of additional airy, airy-fairy um, uh, uh, buffering of reality through um, through kind of politics and cooperation and things like that goes away and it's just down to me. And they think, and I think what, why some people are attracted to these narratives so much is that they think that that's the most real, that's the most real situation that they could find themselves in. Um, and it should be said that I think uh, these people actually have a, so often these ideas are founded on kind of what they see as biological realities or um, evolutionary principles. But at the same time, there's a lot of work being done at the moment to show that evolutionary uh, evolutionary processes is actually rely on cooperation. And there's some, if you want to go look them up, um, Sarah Coakley's Gifford lectures uh, on the role of self-sacrifice and, um, uh, and cooperation uh, in evolution is fascinating, which actually suggests. So, sorry, yeah. I was going to say, so this is, this is, <laughs> I'm going to throw a spanner at you. This is, you know, I mean, you take the COVID-19 app that the government is putting forward. Part of it, to my mind, part of the objection, I do wonder whether part of the objection does rely on a certain rugged individualism. Yep. That is kind of a sense of, oh, we must be distrusting towards each other and especially towards civil authority. Mm. And I, to, in order to maintain my sort of siloed off sphere, right? Yeah. Um, you know, as opposed to a more cooperative understanding. Now, I recognize that you would go into a much larger <laughs> discussion there about the nature of a surveillance state and yeah. so on. But there does seem to me to be a little bit of the element there of like that that the fundamental reality is not to be co- is not cooperative, but yeah. actually to maintain my sense of privacy, right? Or yeah. my sense of um, enclosed off space. Yeah. So I think 
I yeah I so I think there's something right there, and you certainly see this in the United States at the moment with protests around uh, limitations on on freedom of movement that are going on. That this this sense in which um, freedom of movement and choice are um, uh, unquestionable ultimate concerns, and anything that gets away in the way of them are, are evil. And privacy could be taken that way as well. I do have concerns about the app. I haven't downloaded this is it yet. an app. Sorry, I should have been the app in the context of Australia is a tracing app so that it can uh, connect with other phones. If you if you then exhibit signs of COVID nineteen, you can then yeah. be see so that we can do contact tracing. Right? Yeah. Um. I I didn't want. I'm sorry. I I I put us down a little. <laughs> Yeah, a little, yeah. no, little by the way, I've almost just I'm holding it out there to tempt Dave to go into a little bit of a rant. <laughs> I I've put my I've put away my copy of the Human Condition. I was re- rereading it the other night um, by Hunter Arendt, and there's something. So I I probably will download the app um, for the reasons that you are saying, but at the same time, there's real concerns with it, right? So um, theorists always talk about the the uh, often talk about the. Uh, the creation of states of emergency to suspend legal and moral norms uh, that then get embedded within the day-to-day running of a state mm. uh, and get normalised. And what my concern around the tracing app is, is that it's it's a normalisation of surveillance, which in itself um, ends up governing behaviour as well. Um, so people, even, even if it's an yeah, irrational right. thought, um, will internalise the eye of the state on themselves and... Um, and all that stuff. And I so think that's pri- totally pri- right. When it so, comes to you know security security cameras everywhere, there is an internalizing of discipline that yeah. takes place, right? But I I do think like you asked me earlier, what, what's the difference between having a contact tracing app in the context of say anti terrorism and the context here? I think anti terrorism would be like saying your citizens are perpetually outlaws or perpetually yeah. perpetually pseudo criminals or criminals yeah. in potential. Whereas yeah, I think right. this tracing app, at least theoretically, I think of it more in the context of this is solidarity with my neighbor, yeah. and it's not treating us as criminals but rather it's saying that we are the body politic health the health of the body politic is also the health of an individual person and yeah. their network of relations right so i think this is more an act of solidarity so, now there are various technical questions i'm sure that that people could go into that's just how i think of it like uh, at a at a at a very broad level yeah. i think yeah listen and I, I i suspect that the right thing to do in this situation is to download the app uh, but you know, I'd have to think about it much more, and I probably yeah, yeah. will do it Wait, myself. Anyway, this is this but, is me. No, this is me but, <laughs> taking Dave in a total. But I've, I think uh, one of the interesting, one of the things that has been in my mind is there's a fascinating um, conversation in Hannah Arendt about um, data and statistics, um, and she thinks that a society based around data um, is one that is drifting towards totalitarianism because it creates a certain form of knowledge and a certain view of the person. Um, and so for her, uh, so data and, and statistics rely on gigantic populations. And one of the things that is really disconcerting about being in the pandemic is that every citizen now is thinking in terms of billions of people. Um, and they are thinking in terms of numbers that, that the human mind isn't actually capable of, de- of, of dealing with. And once you start thinking in those terms, you start thinking of uh, things in terms of populations, and then you start thinking in terms of um, of maintaining and directing yeah, right. the health of of populations. Right. right. And that uh, and what what is lost there is a sense of the individual and the individual's capacity to act. And in fact, um, an act in Hannah Arendt means specifically deliberate human action within a public sphere. 
And as a matter of fact, she goes further than that. And she says, not only do we start to ignore those thing, those those outlying acts that don't conform to statistical patterns uh, because we need conformity for our statistical models to work. In fact, we don't tolerate deviation um, in the end. We we want people to act in such a way that they conform to the the, the statistical patterns. And this is the 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 germ of the totalitarian mindset. Um, and so she she sees things at, she would be completely unsurprised that given this current situation where we're dealing with gigantic numbers and we're thinking in terms of population that we we're, that we are going towards something like a surveillance um, a, a, a nationwide surveillance system. Uh, she goes that's a completely natural out, outflowing of an epistemology. It's not just a, a matter of practical reason. It, it emerges from a particular view of humanity. Anyway, fascinating. Yes. <laughs> no, that's no, let me let me let me segue us back. Yes. In a in a seamless segue, right? So if we're going back to the resurrection, uh, this is not that seamless at all. But you know, what's um, another you know thematic or another point with um, the passion narrative? There is that Christ adopts a sort of radical solidarity with any person. Yeah. So Christ finds himself in the position that any person may find themselves when faced with the sort of tri, uh, the three powers of the mob you know, the, yep. the religious authorities and the civil authority, right? Yep. That any person may suffer such a death in ways an indifferent death um, that's outside of the city that is in some sense, um, you know, a, a death almost typified by indifference at the hands of these different forms of authority, right? Yep. And so there's a radical solidarity there that takes place that then is, of course, transfigured in the resurrection because it is Christ as God saying, yes, to humanity and yes, to the continuation of community, even in the face of that rejection. Mm. Um, so I think that what you're saying there, you know, if, <laughs> this is a terrible way to shoehorn it in, but there is also that continual focus upon the person, right? Not just mm. not just a political project, but a but personhood as well. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose that ties back to our person personalism episode as well. Um, that where we must always demand that a individual life and and experience is taken into consideration. We can't we, just sacrifice we, an individual for some collective yep. good. Right? And we can't think purely epi- epidemiologically. Um, yeah, so, you know, when they say, you know, it's better that one man dies so that the people yes. may live, so, yes. you know, you can't, you can't, that that is actually a logic that is not available to us on the understanding of Christ's death and resurrection, right? So, yes. Um, so okay, so this this let's let's just give it the little time we have left, and I think we'll go probably over a little if we can. But talking about you catastrophe as as a politics, right? That that Pope Francis uh, that I began with, where he says, you know, that we uh, we we take a path through the abyss, hmm. right? We don't bypass suffering and death, but we pass through it in order to open a path through the abyss, transforming evil into something good, right? And now there's something there, again, that's a eucatastrophe-esque mm. thought, right? About in the midst of despair, that we can have the joy of the overturning, the joy of the interruption of something new, for example. Now, I find this fascinating because we, you get a lot of discourse at the moment is talking about, you know, to the prime minister saying, you know, and we will get over this. Yeah. We will, you know, we will almost get back to normal and so on. I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure we will for starters. Yeah. Like things go just simply flick back. But mm-hmm. also there's a sense of like, well, 
what do we want? As in, we're kind of in an apocalyptic moment, right? Where what is being revealed of our normal could mm. be dysfunctional or yep. things that are dysfunctional or things that are conducive to empire or um, things that are contrary to that primacy, the ontological primacy of life that you mentioned or yeah. that they rely on sacrifice and so on. So there's a kind of question here about um, what do we do? Pope Francis in his Urbi, uh, Orbi uh, blessing, you know, he called this time of trial that we go through, he calls it a time of choosing, Yeah, right? That there is actually capacity now to engage in thinking about a new politics of life. Or um, uh, I was just reading John Gray's essay in The New Statesman, right, which he, I don't agree with everything he says, but he was saying that it's beholding on those of us who aren't in the medical profession, who aren't having to deal with essential services and so on, to start thinking about, well, what, what does it look like? You know, what does yeah. what do we look like coming through this? What kind yeah. of politics do we want? And so there's a question here, I think, about starting to sort of, uh, you know, dream bigger, as it were, or think big about, you know, what is a politics that actually privileges the primacy of the ontological primacy of life that you're mentioning, right? Mm. You know, you get Pope Francis, for example, in his address, he's he gets quite explicit. He told this is an Easter address. He talks about relieving sanctions upon nations, mm. relief of debt, provision of means to all people so that they're yeah. not impoverished, right? Overcoming fraternal rivalry between nations. So the UN, yeah. when it called for a ceasefire, universal ceasefire across the mm. world, right? A global ceasefire, the elimination of arms dealing, he says, protecting the migrant and the refugee. You know, yeah. the Archbishop of Canterbury in his Easter sermon talked about, we need a resurrection of our common life, a new normal, something that's not, uh, that's, that is linked to the old, but is doing also beautiful new things. Yep. We just dream it and so on and, and grasp what he says is the, the calling of God here to join with God, yep. serving the poor and changing our understanding of the need for the, for care and these sorts of things. So a real question, you know, I think at the moment is, you know, given we're in this Easter season and it's this kind of bizarre moment where we're in the Easter season, which is the resurrection, you know, the event of Christ's return from the death, from mm. the dead and that affirmation of life over death at the same time in which we're going through a pandemic. So how do we think, yeah. what what does a politics of life look like? Yeah, so that's like, I, I think that's spot on. And so we we can take this opportunity uh, to to look at our current circumstances and say, what does it mean to make sure that everyone it, it, everyone's needs are provided for? What does that look like? But it also raises questions about the way that we've been doing life generally. So if we think about a few things, there's been calls in the UK, in the UK coming from clergy, um, in particular, but and from all over the world, uh, saying that um, bailouts around COVID nineteen should be denied to any company who is registered in a tax haven. Uh, that's a that's a that would be a fantastic move um, towards the uh, towards economic justice. Um, that that could be uh, something amazingly new and unexpected um, coming out of our current situation. We're also discussing th ideas like universal basic income. We're starting to also um, have huge portions of the population that usually didn't feel a sense of solidarity or sympathy with, with the poor and the unemployed. All of a sudden in a situation where they themselves are faced with that threat mm. or experiencing it themselves, that itself could, uh, could generate a new form of politics. So we've, we've got just so one more thing. So yeah. we're, uh, the way in which we do our work and family life has now been called into question. We're starting to uh, be able to raise questions about, I was commuting an hour, hour, hour a day to work and, um, and things like that. And also this is the way in which um, 
my family has been organized that we've just assumed is natural and now is uh and now is being that that the nat- the naturalness of that is being cha- challenged all these things raise questions that there's, could there's create a, a form, of new others, forms of though. social and political realities. yeah so a couple of others i i thought you know of the um in revelation um has the verse the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations yeah I mean, isn't that fascinating to think? I had this as other moment. I was sitting at my desk in our apartment and I just heard this absolute cacophony of birds. Now, mm. you've heard me on record as saying that Australian birds are just a cacophony of screeching mess. Right? But, <laughs> you know, but it was quite amazing to hear sh- how sheerly loud it was. Mm. Um, and I thought, I wondered, I, I wondered, like, is this because um, we have a certain stillness Although that is in perpetually seems to be interrupted by people doing perpetual DIY, DIY unbelievable. But but you know, no airplanes. Does yep. this mean that quite literally for our environment and certain uh, creatures that we share this common home with, that they are having a reprieve? Yeah, they are. And what yep. does that what does that say to yeah. us? Does that say something that is quite beautiful and good that we mm. actually want to continue with? Another one that and I don't think this is actually happening, but there's been little hints towards it, is about the shape of the university, right? So I'd said in the last episode how our frenetic activity seems to have just gone, not even slow, just gone into hyperdrive in some ways. But there is a sense in which, well, can you actually, do you need to out of necessity now reorient the universities to something else? You know, that yep. isn't just about this um, high risk, high reward program of internationalization and so on. I'm not sure. So there are interesting things there about... Um, you know, even the use of a state, civil authority, this massive fiscal injection we're seeing in order to, um, although there's been, I think, very um, amb- ambiguities about it, but this massive injection in order to help those who are most in need, mm. right? You know, completely contrary to the politics that we've been told and necessary in this budget deficit sort of environment and these sorts of things, right? So there are these sort of, you know, eruptions, yeah. as it were. And the question is, to my mind, are these, you know, can do we, ex- are we going to simply have, you know, this attempt at a bounce back? Yeah. Or all so circumstances yeah. of necessity demand that we can't have that yeah. return to normal? Yeah. Or will people think, you know, actually, um, there are things that this crisis has heightened for me uh, around the primacy of. Yep. You know, solidarity, the primacy of, you know, my connections to people, the primacy mm. of my natural environment, you know, things that, um, or even as we mentioned before, the primacy of even trying to seek some sacred meaning. You know? Yeah, so, that's right. You know, turning to churches, for example, and yeah. thinking, you know, how, who, 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 where is it that I take my pain and look for, mm. you know, a newness, a freshness, yeah. In my life, right? The, all these do- different things. Uh, are we going to see this more or is it going to be actually, I don't know because, you know, sometimes we ca- characterize it as you're, super, you're Batman, I'm Superman, right? Mm. You're the one who's cynical and just thinks we just have to keep on going and fighting the battle and, you know, we're probably going to have to just collapse in a, and with our whiskey at the end of the night sort of thing, right? Whereas I'm typically Superman thinking, no, no, we can change things. We, but at the moment I feel, <laughs> to be honest, I feel kind of like, Oh man, it's just so world wearying yeah. and discouraging a lot of what goes on that it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You know it's just a completely open question to my mind. Yeah. And I suppose to, to finish up, all I would say is that there is, there is kind of a perverse solidarity between certain forms of radical leftists and right wing doomsday 
paper libertarians in, in, in especially in America, in that there is this assumption of the necessity and inevitability of civilizational collapse and the, the ultimate barbarism that would be produced through that. And there's almost a relishing in that um, inevitability. Uh, and I think that leads to a politics of um, cynicism uh, that um, ultimately serves the interests of the powerful. And so we need a politics based on the possibility of your catastrophe. And, and that's almost a moral obligation, I think, that we, we leave open the door to hope. And not, and not just hope, but um, artistic, imaginative, um, possible futures mm. um, uh, where, where all sorts of things are possible. Um, so, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be such a, a Batman all the time. <laughs> Oh, we've got to wrap it up there. I have a meeting in two minutes uh, <laughs> on Zoom. Uh, so uh, you've been listening to your catastrophe. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, that's the end of our three-part COVID series. Um, who knows uh, what we'll be talking about next uh, week. We'll be taking a week off as we uh, uh, research and prepare for the, the next three episodes. And um, please like us on Facebook. You can find that by uh, find us by just searching the Catastrophe on Facebook, um, or like follow us on Twitter um, at UCAT E U C A T underscore podcast. Also, drop us a review and share us with your friends so that other people get to hear our dulcet tones. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye.